you are listening to the Sermon Podcast at Bethel. We're an evangelical covenant church located in western Wisconsin outside of Ellsworth, and you can find out more about us on our website, BethelCov.org. My name is Todd Speaker. I'm the pastor here, and thank you for listening. Your Bibles uh, to Lamentations chapter 4. The other day at coffee, uh, someone commented that I, I'm always talking about how hard it is to find lamentations, and, and it is, and someone said, well, then you must not have done um, uh, sword drills in youth group when you were a kid. And I, well, I did, but I was terrible at them, but we'd always, we hold your Bible out, this is what you do, Sunday school, and the key is, you'll notice you're not allowed to cheat by putting your thumbs up towards the middle, because then you've got kind of a head start on everybody, so they have to be thumbs to the side. Bible's out, and the youth pastor looks around, and they say, okay, Lamentations 4, and then everybody, uh, everybody races to see who can get there first. And then the prize, this is, um, now you know about my dorky upbringing, the prize is you get to read it then uh, aloud in front of everybody, and everybody's like, yeah, real Christian, right? <laughs> no. Uh, so Lamentations 4 is what we're, what we're looking at today. Um. <clears throat> And as, as we've talked about, Lamentations, the book of Lamentations, is, is five poems. It's a, it's a collection of five prayers, five um, poetic prayers, written um, reflecting on the fall of, of Jerusalem, uh, the capital city of God's people, God's nation, uh, that, that God built according to the Old Testament. God called a family to become a people, to become a nation, so that he could bless them and bless the whole world through them. This was the, this was the plan. This was the, the promise. And the promise that God made to that nation, to that family, to that people, was that if they held on to him, he would hold on to them. And the ways that they could hold on to God was by uh, worshiping God and God alone uh, and by following the law uh, that God gives them in, in the Old Testament. Um, and, and by following the law, they would be, um, there are all kinds of things in the law that are really important. It talks about how to worship God well, and it, and it talks about how to treat your neighbor and your community. Uh, so a little, little Old Testament lesson. That's the plan. That's the hope. And the idea is that if God's people stay close to God, uh, and Jerusalem and Israel stays close to God, God will use them to bless the whole world by blessing them. God says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And so God plans to, plans to do this through, through this special family. And if you know the Old Testament, you know that they um, don't uh, often live up to that promise, to that ideal. Uh, the problem isn't that God doesn't keep his promise to them, uh, but that the people they can't seem to keep their promise to God. And over many, many years, through many, many generations and many, many uh, successes, followed by many, many failures and many, many times that God comes in and saves the day and forgives them, uh, eventually uh, it comes to a point where the, um, the people that are living in Israel and calling uh, God their God aren't really living in reality like they believe God is their God. Um, if you read the prophets, you get a picture of what this looks like. Um, so sometimes it's they're worshiping other gods. Sometimes it's they're not worshiping God in the way that he asks to be worshipped. But, but more almost than anything else, um, oftentimes it's because they've disregarded what God's law says about how to care for people who can't defend themselves, uh, for the weak, 
the vulnerable and the poor. Um, and so uh, eventually, uh, it just becomes so much. The reality inside of Jerusalem, this nation calling itself God's people on earth, um, it, their crimes just build up so high. And, and eventually, the evil inside of that city and the harm that it's doing to the people inside of it, uh, God does something about it. And if you've read uh, Second Kings, um, you know that what he does is he sends uh, this other empire, this other uh, group of ancient people who were renowned for their badness, <laughs> to, and he, he allows them to, to come into Jerusalem and level the city and, and erect the temple. And so Lamentations is written uh, by the people that are sitting in the dust of that city. And the question that they're wrestling with, and you can kind of hear it a little bit in Lamentations, is um, how, how can this be? I thought we were God's people. And uh, will God forget about us forever? And, and so Lamentations is, is a really special book. Uh, I think it's a really important book for all of us to, to hear from occasionally. You often don't hear from it in church because it's uh, not, not the most fun thing to talk about, and it's not the most happy scripture, and it doesn't belong on the verse-a-day calendar. Um, but the truth is that there's a, a way that these people, God's people, respond to their situation uh, that I think uh, we can look at and how we respond to the disasters, the tragedies, and the failures in our own lives. And so that's what we've been looking at. And so today we're in, in Lamentations 4, the fourth poem. And we talked about how uh, in, in Hebrew poetry, the, the, it's sort of like a mountain. Last week was the mountaintop. Uh, they talked about the one place where you might be able to dare to hope after facing such a huge disaster. And now Lamentations 4, we're sort of coming down the mountain. And so we'll, we'll get into that a little bit. Um, but it was interesting as I was reading it, it reminded me of something that I was listening to right around this time last year. Uh, so, so right around this time last year, as the uh, stuff was starting in the crazy year and blah, 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 you know, the pandemic and everything, I, I listened to this interview with somebody. And, and they were talking about how uh, this, this woman had written uh, a bunch of books about natural disasters. And so they were like, hey, this seems like a natural disaster. Let's have the natural disaster lady talk. Uh, and she, she talked about how uh, she met with the communities and studied communities that had faced hurricanes and earthquakes, uh, terrorist attacks, and, and what happened to those towns, to those communities, uh, to those cities. And how they came out on the other side. Uh, it was really interesting. And, and the one thing that just stuck with me through the, these whole last months, she shared this, this helpful insight. And maybe you're hearing me and you're like, yeah, this is super obvious why I even mention it, but I, I thought it was helpful. Uh, she said this, that um, in each of these communities, when they face that hurricane, that earthquake, or that tornado, um, they all d- responded differently. You know, they all tried different things. Uh, they, all, they all responded differently, but when the dust settled, at the end of the day, um, it turned out that the results, the, the strength of that school or that church or that town um, uh, had way more to do with how strong it was right before the disaster than anything they did in the disaster. And so they said if, you know, if a school had a really hard time graduating, a really bad graduation rate before the tornado, you know, you give it 10 years and, and they're going to have a worse graduation rate. 
Um, their weaknesses get weaker. But on the other side, if you have a school uh, you know, that's, that's really good in that way, they get better following the disaster. She said the best way to predict how an organization or a town or a workplace will do after a disaster is to look at their strengths and their, and their weaknesses just before the storm hits. Because without fail, uh, that disaster had a way of heightening all of them. Uh, she said, in almost every case, whatever people did um, well before, uh, whatever people did well uh, got better, and their weaknesses got worse. And she said, it just stuck with me, that, that when you face a disaster, it doesn't change you as much as it reveals you. Like a, a windstorm blowing sand off of an ancient ruin. And, and Lamentations 4, um, I think Lamentations 4 is, is highlighting something Something like that, uh, because Lamentations 4, uh, it focuses on contrasts. Uh, so if you read this on your own sometime, I encourage you to. We're going to jump around a little bit. Uh, but if you read this on your own, you'll notice that, that every other line uh, is, is a comparison. And, and what the author will hold up is, is the way things used to be, or maybe how they used to see things, and how... They are now. Uh, and so here's, here's a few examples, and you'll have to look. I, I didn't put them all up on the screen this week. Um, <clears throat> it starts in, in, verse, in verse 1. How the gold has lost its luster. The fine gold has become dull. The author says, the gold uh, doesn't look like gold to us anymore. Uh, the next, the sacred gems, these beautiful gems, they're, they're scattered at every street corner. Uh, what's, what's good and beautiful doesn't look so beautiful. He continues on. How precious, how the precious children of Zion, once worth their weight in gold, are now considered pots of clay, the work of a potter's hands. Uh, the most valuable resource, our young people, our children, is now considered like pots. Those who once ate delicacies, the author goes on, are destitute. You see that contrast from eating delicacies and caviar to uh, utter poverty. Those brought up in royal purple in the most beautiful uh, clothes of wealth and royalty, they now lie in ash heaps. It's, it's all about the contrast. It continues. The, their princes were brighter than snow, whiter than milk, their bodies more ruddy than rubies, their appearance like lapis lazuli, the most beautiful princes and important perfect people, but now they are blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as a stick. Uh, verse 12, to jump down, it says, the kings of the earth uh, did not believe, nor any people of the world, that enemies and foes could enter the gates of Jerusalem. The, the nations thought Jerusalem is impregnable and unstoppable. But of course, we know that they did. And it continues in verse 13. It's happened because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed within her the blood of the righteousness of the righteous. It happened uh, because the good people, the, the prophets and the priests, they, uh, they killed the righteous. And it says now those people, those prophets and priests who are supposed to see and lead, um, they're blind. And they grope through the streets. They're so defiled with blood, no one dares touch 
their garments. It's this, it's this contrast. The worst thing you can be as a priest is defiled, right? Uh, because you can't do any part of your job uh, as a priest. And so Lamentations uh, 4, it presents how things appeared before the fall of the city. The goal, the, the value, the beauty, the wealth, and how they appear now. And, it, and it's another acrostic. It's another A to Z. And if you read it as a whole, right, you just see um, how it used to be and how it is today. And, it, and, it's, and it's devastating. Uh, and if you've ever gone through something, you can, maybe you can even think of a time that something has happened to you, that things that you thought mattered, things like gold, have lost their luster for you. But for the, the, the people of Lamentation, it goes so much further than that. You know, wealth, they say, and its power, it's lost its value. Uh, our children and the hope, their future that they bring is discarded. The people who ate caviar are starving. Good women turned to monsters. Princes, celebrities, and charismatic leaders are darkened and destitute, one to the other. Religious leaders blinded, homeless, unclean, and hated. An impregnable fortress city decimated. The chosen caught and killed. Um, and, and as hard as that is, as devastating as that is to hear, um, there's something uh, that we believe to be true if you read the prophets ab- about uh, this story, about this moment. And, and the truth is, uh, and, and the people that read this and prayed this prayer, um, even if they couldn't say it out loud in that moment, they believed this to be true. The truth is that before Babylon came to their doorstep, before the disaster happened, Jerusalem was already not um, living up to what they believed it was. It was already a dark place of starvation and hunger and suffering for many people. The prophets tell us that uh, the people had turned away from God's dream for them. They worshipped other gods, they neglected and took advantage and exploited the poor and the vulnerable they disregarded the promise that they made to God. And, and so when the walls of Jerusalem were breached, it's not so much that the disaster brought all these things about as uh, the reality of their poverty shined through. It wasn't that suddenly things changed in the city, and it did change for some people, but, but the problem was, uh, the reality was that things became clear when the Babylonians arrived. It's sort of like cutting into an apple that looks good on the outside, but the worm got it on the other side. Uh, And Lamentations 4 highlights that experience, that, that contrast. The siege and the fall of the city only revealed the reality. Uh, our, our Bible believes, if you read the prophets and what God said he was going to do and what was going on in this town, uh, as beautiful as it looked the day before the Babylonians got there, uh, the Bible believes that the city of Jerusalem was dead before the Babylonians came. The city before the siege, in the words of, of Jesus, uh, words that he would use 500 years later, was a whitewashed tomb. It may have looked like they were worshiping God in the temple, but they weren't really worshiping God in the temple. It may have looked like they had security, safety, prosperity, and wealth, but it was an illusion. Because uh, the riches of the city before the siege, the gold was not seen as a blessing from God but proof of their goodness. The security of the city walls wasn't seen as a result of God's presence, 
but it was rooted in uh, strong gates. The hope of the city before the Babylonians came was no longer in God's promise, but in beautiful princes, celebrities, and politicians. Their religion was no longer about challenging people to conform to what God says is good, but dedicated to justifying the constituents, the nation, the rich, and those with the loudest voices. They had elevated the gifts of prosperity to the place of the giver. They had elevated good outcomes over faithful actions. They had elevated the fruit as the source of their prosperity rather than the location of their roots. Uh, But Jesus invites people to do the opposite when he walks the earth many years later. Matthew 5, 19, Jesus says, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Deal with the inside. Don't put your hope in these things to protect you. John 15, uh, 4 through 11, Jesus says, Remain in me as I also remain in you. For no branch can bear fruit by itself, but must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. But if you remain in me, and my words remain in you. Ask what you wish, and it will be done for you. This is my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. Uh, human beings, regular people, uh, maybe not you, but, but, but me oftentimes, uh, human beings are obsessed with the appearance of things. We're obsessed with the gold and the food and the beauty and the security and the self-protection. We're obsessed with how things look to ourselves and others. And and we want to plant our feet in the outcomes, in, in the fruit. But Jesus says, connect to the vine and you will see fruit. Don't mistake the fruit for the roots. Don't mistake the outcome for the source of the outcome. Don't mistake the gift for the giver. But tragedies have this way of showing what's going on underneath our surfaces. Tragedies have this way of showing us where our feet really were planted. Of showing us how we keep our faith in stick houses sometimes. And and, and this year, we've had a lot of wind This year, we've had a lot of wind to blow the sand off of the hidden parts of our lives. If you're like me, maybe this year you've seen uh, the places that you've put your hope in revealed to not be very strong. Maybe uh, you've had the the sand blow off uh, of people that you put your faith into of institutions that you thought you could trust, of, of even your own self-defense uh, or security or provision. Uh, all of us have seen the sand blow off. And when we face tragedy, when we face challenges, we're invited uh, to give reality back to God. Uh, both the good and the bad things. We're invited to say, I did not put my hope in the best place. 
that person let me down. That thing let me down. And we're invited to give the bad and the good back to him in tragedy. We're invited to name and be honest in lament the people and the places and the things that we've put our trust in this year and seen lacking. And we're invited to celebrate the giver of the good gifts that we do have. And finally, in lament, in response to tragedy, we're invited to be planted again on the only solid and only true foundation there is. If you're like me, this year you've seen people, places, and things turn out to not be so good places to put your hope. Maybe you're reeling from world-shattering events in your own life. Grief and loss. Things that you thought you could count on not being quite what you hoped they would be. Maybe someone's let you down this year. And the truth is, in that moment, when we're facing those things that we've been let down by, the truth is, and I think hopefully maybe one gift of this year is that maybe we're ready to know it. Because the truth is this, that every leader, every possession, every uh, uh, stock, every training, every loved one, every spouse, every parent, every strong gate, every gun, every canned good, every mask, every shot, every essential oil, every strength, every solution, every hope, everything will let us down eventually if we put our hope in them. Every prediction, every promise, every future, except for one. Christ alone. And that one is Christ alone. And so my invitation to you as people of this church, as we come closer to Easter and celebrating the empty tomb, is that we be honest and name the things and the people that have let us down, the places that we should not have put our trust in to begin with, and that we come back together with our feet planted on Christ. We confess our failures and our sins. We, we hold up the ways that we fell short and trusted the wrong things. But ultimately, that we plant our feet on him and him alone. So may we name what we've lost this year and the things that have let us down. May we celebrate the giver of the good gifts and replace together our trust and our hope, not in fruit, not in outcomes, not in families, not in strength, not in any of that important stuff, but in Christ. We're invited to admit our need to believe in the only one worth believing in and to be transformed by his Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we scramble for people, places, and things, and ideas that we can put our hope into, that we can hide our life in, that we can build our lives on. We scramble for them. But when the winds come and the waves rise, when trouble strikes, we find that every person place, thing, or idea that we put our faith and our hope in to build a life, it, it falls short but one. 
and that's your son who came and lived and died on our behalf and who rose again, showing us that we can put our hope and our faith in the resurrection. So Lord, we confess our need for you. We believe that you sent your son to die and rise. And we invite your Holy Spirit to make us new. In your name, amen. I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward. Let's conclude our service in praise, putting our faith in the only place we can. Amen? Amen. Thanks for joining us. You can find out more about our church, our live stream, and our in-person services at BethelCove.org. Thanks and have a great week.